Welcome to the Shambhala Sunday Gatherings podcast. Each week, we invite a guest presenter from the Shambhala community to talk about what is meaningful to them or to share a brief Dharma talk. These explorations range from the reality of impermanence, death, and the unknown to how we express and work with joy, contentment, and fearlessness in our daily lives. Presenters offer a guided meditation or contemplation practice and invite reflections, comments, and questions from participants about the poignancy and complexity of our shared journey on planet Earth. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering podcast. It is a delight to welcome, as always, Mo Hardin. Good afternoon, Mo. It's good to see you. Mo Hardin met Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche in 1974 and has been a student of Shambhala since that time. He's the author of A Little Book of Love, Buddhist Wisdom on Bringing Happiness to Ourselves and Our World. He lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia, with his wife, Cindy Blue. And he is also the lead teacher for uh, student-teacher relationship in the Three Yanas, which is currently featured. Uh, it's a pre-recorded course that is featured on Shambhala Online. So you are welcome after this uh, session is over with to go over there and check that out. But in the meantime, Mo, it's great to see you. Welcome. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing, uh, hearing from you today. So. Okay. So just for a minute or two, let's just sit and settle from our little... And let's begin with a bow. <clears throat> we have a, a, a few minutes, actually, not very long, to discuss briefly uh, this quote by Albert Einstein. And I've, you know, all my life loved to read very general public books about relativity theory, quantum mechanics, uh, multi-universe theory, uh, all of these advances in modern science in terms of uh, understanding what our reality is and how it works, and comparing them in my own mind to the understanding that uh, is expressed by, in the Buddhist tradition of what reality is. Um, <clears throat> I've also always been fascinated by Albert Einstein and uh, particularly fascinated with his use of thought experiments. He used thought experiments as a fundamental way of understanding 
the physical issues he was dealing with and communicating them to others. So for example, at the age of 16, Albert Einstein mentally chased beams of light in his mind at the same velocity as the light. And then he mentally compared how such an observer traveling at the speed of light would perceive reality in relation to an observer who is stationary on the earth. So at 16, he was playing with his mind like this. And actually this gave, uh, was the seed of the uh, special th theory of relativity which he developed later. And one of the main examples or the, the uh, thought experiments he used for that was uh, if you're sitting on a train and there's another train next to you and your only visual reference points are your two trains and one of the trains starts moving, it is not actually not possible to tell whether you're moving or the other train is moving because they're relative to each other. So that kind of thinking, uh, it seems to me, is very similar to how we try to understand the Dharma. We think deeply about it. We call that contemplation. We visualize reality in a different way than it might appear to us. And we uh, make use of analogies in the physical world that help explain or understand the Dharmic world, so to speak. Uh, for example, the first thing that pops to mind is that um, um, the adventitious stains which cover our Buddha nature, the adventitious stains are like the clouds and our Buddha nature is like the sun. So the stains cover the clouds, but they never actually affect the sun. They are completely separate from the sun. And as soon as the clouds are gone, the sun is still there in his brilliance. So thought experiments. I'm, we're going to try a thought experiment this afternoon. Now I'm the first to admit that I am not a scientist, nor am I a Buddhist scholar. But I am a practitioner who needs to understand complex topics very simply in order for them to be useful to me. And as a teacher, in order to be able to express them to others. So I have found this, this uh, process of thought experiments very helpful in that way in trying to simplify and make something 
graspable that I can't grasp otherwise. From a number of emails I've received before this uh, Sunday gathering, there seems to be a great deal of interest in Albert Einstein. And uh, two of you, two good friends, wrote me about um, that the quote I'm using might not be really a quote of Albert Einstein. Not completely. It's, it might be a misquote. And I, uh, I have looked into this before, some 10 years ago when I was working on my book and I used this quote. But I looked into it again and it led me down a rabbit hole that was getting very dark and very complicated. And this talk was getting very complicated comparing, did he really say this? And if he, and then he said that and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And finally, I, I, I actually kind of threw up my hands and I said, this is getting way too complicated. And I went for a walk and I realized that, that what I wanted to do um, was express a basic principle of Dharma that is so elegantly expressed in this quote by Einstein to you. That's what I wanted to do. I, it, I had to precipitate everything out and, and bring it down to earth. So um, I'm not sure, JT, if the, um, I, I, I put some links, I sent some links and they're either in the chat or in a follow-up email. If you would like to research what Einstein might have really said and what he might not have really said. So I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. The first known version was originally written by Einstein in February of 1950 in a letter to a friend named Robert Marcus, who was distraught over the death of his son from polio. And uh, this first version of this quote reads, a human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of reality, or of consciousness, I'm sorry, an optical delusion of consciousness. The striving to be free to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish it, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. So the, the essence of the first two sentences are there, but then it changes and then he, he later in February of the same year, again to a friend who lost a daughter, uh, wrote the same 
first two sentences, but then uh, he added what what is in our uh, version, the version that I gave to you. Uh, this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affections for a few persons nearer to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And that's all I'm going to say about that. If you would like to research it more, you're welcome to. So like I said, what I would like to do is uh, convey a very basic principle of the Dharma that is very elegantly expressed in this quotation by Albert Einstein. And I'll start and we'll see how far we can get. The first part is the most important. When I first read this quote, and I think it was quoted in a book by Pema, uh, it really caught me and I thought about it a lot. I reflected on it a lot. And these reflections evolved into a kind of a contemplation practice that I did with myself for a long time, quite a lot, daily for months. Not as a formal contemplation, but just walking around or sitting down or doing the dishes or I would just have, I would just think this little contemplation and explore it in my life. I thought of it kind of as a thought experiment. And I personally found it sometimes a very potent way to shift my um, dualistic uh, view of experience, of existence, and to catch a glimpse, perhaps, of a sense of wholeness or non-dualistic non perception. Sometimes. I've used it since, uh, often in teaching. And again, I have found it gets to the principle of ego and egolessness in a very simple and direct way. So, the first part of this quote seems to be about ego and egolessness. And the second part seems to be about overcoming ego by expanding our, expand, our compassion. So we're going to start with the first part. 
So a human being is a part of a whole called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. So obviously we live in the universe. We are an inherent part of the universe. And this part of the universe that we are, because we are embodied, is limited in time, that is the time between our birth and our death. And it's limited in space, that is what we can perceive with our sense perceptions at any given moment. We can see that much of the universe. So we are a part of the whole universe, but we have a limited perspective. So to continue with the quote, we experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. To me, this sentence is an extraordinarily simple and direct description of a Buddhist understanding of ego and actually of egolessness. Because ego is the experience, the fundamental experience of ego, we could say, is being separate. But according to Mr. Einstein, this is a delusion, the separateness. A delusion is an idiosyncratic belief or impression maintained despite being contradicted by reality or a rational argument. So, a delusion. Our ego is a delusion. This experience of separation is not real in reality. As the Buddha taught, this ego has never actually been real at all. So discovering egolessness is not a matter of getting rid of something real called ego but seeing that it is and always has been a delusion. In Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, the Vidyadara Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche says, fundamentally there is just open space, the basic ground, what we really are. Our most fundamental state of mind before the creation of ego is such that there is basic openness, basic freedom, a spacious quality, and we have now and have always had this openness. So where has this uh, openness, the space gone. What happened? 
How did we, why and how, or did we separate from this space? And I was fortunate in my life to hear in person uh, at two, on two different occasions, somebody ask Trungpa Rinpoche this question. What happened? Why did we separate ourselves in space? And the first time I remember very clearly, he said, beats me. And the second time, he was a little more forthcoming and he said, we become too active in the space. Which is what he says in Cutting Through, Spiritual Materialism. He says, we begin to spend more than is necessary to express the space and become self-conscious. This sense of going too fast, uh, an analogy which has always been helpful for me is riding a bicycle down a nice hill, nice slope with nice curves, and we don't have to pedal because we're going downhill. And it's not too steep, so we're not going too fast, and there's nice curves and the wind's blowing in our face and our hair and the uh, our sense our you know sense perceptions are flying by visually and we're just having such a we're so in tune with riding this bicycle down the hill and then suddenly there's this little flicker of thought I'm going really fast and we go <gasps> and we freeze and we freeze the space. And because we freeze the space, we're out of the flow and we, we probably crash actually. That freezing the space, because there's a flicker of self-consciousness is the creation of the first skanda of form. And then in the, the Buddha describes how this separation from space, this solidification of space is further solidified through the other four skandhas, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. And this is what is expressed so simply in this statement by Einstein, the separation. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, from everything else. A kind of Optical delusion of consciousness, which is seems to me really good. Optical. Perceptually, it actually takes place right here at our eyes. 
where our felt inner experience meets the perceived outer world. And we perceive this inner self and the outer world as being separate. Right here. Optical delusion of consciousness. Sakang Mipam Rinpoche once uh, taught that we are not actually 180 degrees away from enlightenment. We might be just two or even one degree away from enlightenment. It's, it's, it's all of ego and all of samsara is actually based on a very slight misperception. A very slight misperception which leads to a delusion that we're separate. And that takes place right here, where we are in here and we look out at the universe. And that's what we, I, I think, I don't want to project onto you too much, but that's what we assume. That I'm in here and I'm looking out at the universe. We've separated ourselves from the open space and create the myth that of being separate from everything else, which is a delusion because actually space cannot be separated. Space cannot be divided up. Space in itself is complete openness. And right here, again, at our eyes, is where this optical delusion, according to Einstein, takes place. We are part of the universe, but we look out from our eyes and assume that I am in here looking out at the universe. I feel that I am in here looking out at the universe. But the fact is, the reality is, that I am a part of the universe looking at itself. So I would like to uh, see what happens here and contemplate this a bit as a thought experiment, that, that statement. I assume that I am in here looking at, out at the universe, but in fact, I, I am a part of the universe looking at itself. When I've used this in teaching before, I've always done it very briefly, like for 20 seconds or 30 seconds to contemplate that, maybe a minute, just a flash. But today, 
for some reason, I would like, maybe inspired by the idea of thought experiment, I would like us to spend a little more time contemplating this, which is the really essence. If we don't get any further than this, this is the essence of what uh, is, uh, to me, really valuable about this quote from Mr. Einstein. So I would like to us to contemplate as a thought experiment this, that statement for maybe five minutes. And, you know, in an experiment, we're curious. In an experiment, if we think we know what's going to happen, it's not really an experiment. You know, we're projecting what we want or what we think onto the experiment. So if we're really good scientists, we are curious and open and we pay attention. We pay attention. Do I, is that accurate? Do I really assume that I'm in here looking out at the universe? And if that's true, what does that feel like? Or if I think I am a part of the universe looking at itself, does that thought shift our perception at all? So let's look and see. I assume that I am in here looking out at the universe, but in reality, I am a part of the universe looking at itself. Do I assume that I am in my body behind my eyes looking out at the universe? When in reality I am part of the universe looking at itself.
I am a part of the universe, an inherent, intrinsic part of the universe, looking at itself. I assume, perhaps, that I am inside myself, looking out at the universe, when in fact I'm a part of the universe looking at itself. Good. So uh, our time is short, but I would like to take a few minutes, since this is the essence of this quote, uh, to have any uh, discussion, particularly if you could speak experientially rather than theoretically. Hi, Bob. Hi. Thank you so much for bringing this topic to us. Mm -hmm. I was very excited when I first um, got the notice. I loved the quote. Mm -hmm. Very, very much. So typically, for myself, when I look, look internally, I experience a tremendous amount of spaciousness, whether in each part of my body or as a whole. So I experienced the thought experiment as a bit of a problem, at least initially. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm dismissing it. And the reason I had a problem with the thought experiment is because it's just a notion that when I bring my thinking to looking internally at, at the spaces in my body, it, it obscures everything. The thoughts just stand in the way. Mm -hmm. When I'm simply attuned to my body without thoughts, then I feel like there's just much more connectedness between the spaces in my body and the spaces beyond my body. Mm -hmm. So I'm just sharing, or if you have any reactions to that, just the notion of thinking about it mm -hmm. seems to be the obstacle. Uh, I appreciate that very much. And if you have that experience of looking inward and having 
a lot of space in your body, which is not separate from the space outside your body, don't think about it. <laughs> if the thoughts get in the way, that's what I would suggest. So, um, okay. Yes, thank you. Rainbow? Yeah, I was so happy to see this, this because I, I worked as a chemical engineer for a long time and I took all quantum physics and I was just amazed by it. And it's really nice to see where spirituality meets science. But I just have a question because I find it difficult to put into words. How would you define egolessness? Empty of separation from everything else. Okay. Very simply. Yeah, I tried. I tried to think about it, and you really can. That gets that's the, that's the obstacle right there. Okay, thank you so much. Sure. Laura or Daryl? Yeah, thank you. Um, this quote that we've worked on makes me feel makes me feel more powerful in a way because it dissolves the the duality between me and all that out there. Mm -hmm. So it's not powerful in the sense of ego, but but in the sense of opening up and having more space to express myself or be myself. Thank you. That's good. That's how I experience it. That's wonderful. Thank you. Sally Ann? I thank you so much for this talk and perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a word person. <laughs> so when you first said, um, I assume I am in here looking out at the universe. And then you said in my head, uh, in, oh, sorry, in my body behind my eyes. And, um, and I realized that for myself that that view is um, I am in my head <laughs> or I am in my mind looking at uh it. -huh. Um, and that experience for me is usually one of separation and loneliness um, and when I remember to bring back, um, I'm a part of the universe looking at itself. Um, for me, uh, two things that matter are uh, to think of it not as a part in a mechanistic sense, but a, like I'm a hologram <laughs> that that all of everything is reflected in any, in any small part, just like which part of the water is wet. Um, and um, that made me feel physically warm. Um, obviously that, that connected, uh, but it's, uh, it's big enough that as not separate, I'm beyond judgment. Um, and if I can look at the universe as 
as my separate self and see beauty and wonder and limitlessness and energy and so forth. When I flip that and think of myself as being um, that universe, then I am all those things. And that made me feel pretty good. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Mm, Thanks. Good. Thank you. I could say more, but I think I'll go on. Patricia? This is part of a state of being that is part of healing. Mm -hmm. And I can't just do it with my eyes because I just start melting. And I'm looking at a tree, and the tree is looking at me, and we are the same. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it is a part of healing. And that perception, non-dualistic perception, is actually unspeakable. It's 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 a it's a concept. We we talk we talk we have to talk in concepts, and this goes back to several things that have been said. And concepts in themselves are dualistic. We have a concept about something. So there's already two things. So what I hope this thought experiment can point to experientially is not a thought. But a very direct experience. Of what? Of space of wholeness, of non-duality, non-dual perception. Which brings a lot of space in which we can heal ourselves. Do you have more? So Fred, Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. When um, on the second part, the universe looking at itself, I felt um, the spaciousness and it felt good. And after that immediate feeling, I then had a sense of sadness come over me. I'm sorry, say that again. 
a sense of sadness. Sadness, yes. <clears throat> and I began to wonder um, if that's my going back into the mind or how does this deal with feelings? Not with the thought of, oh, I'm sad, but just the body sense of sadness. Is sadness the mind interpreting or uh, in a spaciousness without feeling or am I misinterpreting what feelings are? Hmm. Hmm. Really good. I, I would say that sadness is from the teachings of uh, my root guru, the Vidyadara, and the teachings of Shambhala altogether, that sadness is inherent in our being because we are separated. So that when we experience uh, some glimpse of non-separateness, of wholeness, of non-duality, non-dual perception, it's natural that sadness is going to arise. Okay. I think you're on to something there. I don't think that's a problem at all. Good luck. And maybe one more. That. Um, dear Mr. Mo, <laughs> I would like to react <laughs> uh, on the first part me uh, looking at the universe was uh, very annoying and uh, I couldn't keep up with all the things <laughs> too much. <laughs> uh, and then the other way around, the uni from the universe looking at the self, uh, then it felt very, uh, I, I got the word trust and the word safety and being at ease, mm -hmm. like having a background, mm -hmm. things like that, and 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 uh, to having lots of time <laughs> to uh, to look, and mm -hmm. so being being calm and being uh, convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, and and what was said about the sadness, I. It came up to me that when you feel this this ease and this letting go and this having nothing uh, to worry about because of the the huge support, then you can in this moment you can feel sad because you didn't realize it before, or maybe. Um, but okay, that's 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 maybe too theoretical. But this experience of um, myself looking at the universe too busy, and then the other way around, around the quietness and the calm. That's 
-hmm. the essence for me uh, in this uh, experience. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very astute, a very astute, astute, uh, accurate, very, that was good. Thank you. So maybe uh, we could go on and touch briefly uh, the rest of this quotation. So Einstein continues and says, this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. So when, I think that actually speaks for itself. It's like uh, ego is a prison. This delusion of being separate makes our world very small. Because we have separated ourselves from the whole we live in a world of our personal desires and affection for just a few people. And as, as several of you have kind of hinted at when you, when you spoke, this contemplation, this thought experiment uh, might give a little glimpse of non-dual perception. Which is very ordinary. What we see doesn't fundamentally change. But there's a slight shift in our perspective. And I, I want to I can't help, whenever we talk about non-duality, which is un, not graspable by concept, uh, I so often feel the need to share this teaching that Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche gave uh, that was the most helpful to me in understanding what this non-dual perception he was talking about. He said, when we first have or experience non-dual perception, we perceive other clearly for the first time. When we first experience non-dual perception, we perceive other clearly for the first time. And that's one of those, you know, it's made my mind go, wait a minute, in non-dual perception, there shouldn't be other. But, you know, that gets into absolute truth and relative truth, and we're not going there. But what he was saying is that when we have non-dual perception, when we have dual perception, dualistic perception, when we're separate and projecting onto our universe, we're projecting what we see as our projections. What we see is our concepts, what we see is our thoughts about 
a person or about reality. But in that flip of non-dual perception, there's no projection. So we have a glimpse of pure perception, things as they are. So then he talks about compassion. And it's interesting to me that, you know, the, the first two sources that this quote came from, he was writing out of compassion for friends who had, had lost uh, a child. He says, our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So that's our task, our duty, our quest, the purpose of any true religion. And how do we escape this prison? By widening our circle of compassion So if we had time, which we don't, I would do a, a contemplation of may all beings be free from suffering. And that's easy, you know, I don't want to suffer. And I know that those who are close to me, my family and my friends, those who I have affection for, I don't want them to suffer. When they suffer, I suffer. But then, you know, it gets beyond that. But as Buddhists, we push beyond that and think, well, what about these neutral people? People I know, like the people in my neighborhood or the people who live in Halifax or in Canada or in North America that I don't know. But can I wish them to be happy? And I expand my compassion to them. And then even people that harm us, whether knowingly or not, but they're harming us, can I wish that they be free from suffering? People who cause so much suffering, can I wish that they be free from suffering? Can I expand my compassion that big? And then to all the creatures who live on this earth. So we know how to expand our circle of compassion. And we have, so to speak, thought experiments to do that with, to imagine that. As has been said, if you can't even imagine wanting all beings to be happy, how could you possibly do it? And then he, he so there's the compassion part, and then he says, and the whole of nature in its beauty.
And what that reminded me of when, when I tried to, what's he saying here? There's this wonderful quote of, from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, which has come into my life a couple of times and then disappeared and come into my life again. And it's never had a source, so I don't know exactly where it's from. And it's uh, too long to read all of it, but I'm going to read just a little bit of it. We experience the beauty of the blue sky, the beauty of a red rose, the beauty of a white chrysanthemum, the beauty of chattering brooks, the beauty of the openness of the ocean where sky and land meet, the beauty of sweet and sour, the beauty of music. And he goes on and he says, and I don't want to paint a pleasure oriented picture only. There is also the beauty of your schoolmaster pinching you on the cheek. The beauty of being too hot on a midsummer day. The beauty of being too cold in the middle of winter. You might ask why we speak of beauty. The answer is that beauty means fullness, totality. total experience. Beauty in this sense is the total experience of things as they are. It is very realistic. And to continue with our quote, and this is whether Einstein said this or whether someone wrote it and with his permission added it to it or whether someone just added it to it or nobody knows. And uh, I'm, it, it's, he could have said it. It's, it's so clear he could have said it. So in some sense, I don't care. I'm sorry, but I don't. He says, the true value of a human being is determined by the measure and the sense in which they have obtained liberation from the ego. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humanity is to survive. So actually that kind of sends and chills up my backbone. That's so beautiful. That we need a new manner of thinking, which is more oriented towards egolessness and overcoming this delusion of our separateness. if humanity is to survive. And I don't know what was wrong with my mind or what was right with my mind when I was doing this, but it was kind of jumping all over the place and making connections. And 
And what made me, what this made me think of, that, that we need a substantially new manner of thinking. We need to overcome ego and have a substantially new way of thinking if humanity is to survive on this planet. That Shambhala, that Buddhism is cosmic. The world of the Buddha Dharma is cosmic. It includes all universes and all over time, over many eons and different kalpas and everything is included in the Buddha Dharma. But I was told, I understand, that Shambhala has a particular karmic connection with the planet Earth, with this planet that we live on. And there was an interesting uh, kind of example of this, which I would like to share. Um, a Shambhalian friend of mine was doing, uh, receiving teachings on Powa, which is the ejection of consciousness when we die, from a very respected uh, teacher, Namgadrime Rinpoche. And, uh, and in this practice, when you eject your consciousness, it goes, you want it to go to Sakavati, to the pure realm of Sakavati. And so my friend raised his hand and he said, sir, this is all very nice, but when I die, I want to go to Shambhala. And Rinpoche looked at him for a moment and he said, you must really love this earth. You must really love this planet earth. So, This to me is an expression of Shambhala vision, that we could have an enlightened society on this planet Earth. So, that's all I have to say. And I've enjoyed this very much, being with you this afternoon. And I hope in some small way it might be helpful to you. So we could uh, dedicate the merit. By this merit, may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
Mo, thank you so very much for such a, a wonderful, thoughtful, gracious, spacious session with so much to contemplate going forward. Um, really beautifully done, and we are so grateful. So thank you, Mo. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast. We hope you can join us again soon. You can find out more about upcoming live Shambhala Sunday gatherings and our podcast at shambhalaonline.org forward slash Sunday dash gatherings forward slash.